Good morning. How's everybody? How's the balcony? Good. Well, it's good to be with you guys. It's uh, fun to be here at the beginning of VBS week. It's always fun uh, for Stephanie and I and our kids um, for many reasons, but especially because we always have a team the last six years, or this is our sixth year, uh, to have a team from our home church in Midland, Texas, the church that we came here from to be here to help with VBS, uh, which is um, always fun and exciting for us. This year, especially, we're excited, not especially, but well, maybe especially excited to have um, Stonegate's lead senior pastor and his wife, Cindy, here as part of that team. Their son, Chapman, is living with us this summer um, while he has an internship at the Giants. And, and I was thinking, I'm going to tell you guys a story that has nothing to do with my sermon. But because Patrick and Cindy are here, I thought about it. And I also thought about it as I saw all these sports-themed decorations everywhere, which yesterday while we were decorating brought up my PTSD from my entire childhood experience with sports, which was terrible. But it also is a story a little bit about um, friendship, but also about uh, being a dad. So I had, we have three kids. I had two daughters. We never found out what we were having. We, it was a surprise at every one. And I was a little bit nervous every time we had a kid that it was going to be a boy. Because I didn't know anything about sports or a lot of things that are typical boy things. And I would um, share that concern with my uh, brothers that were on the staff with me at Stonegate. And they always would tell me, don't worry, if you have a boy, we will help you. So... Peter pops out of the womb, a boy. And I was excited. I I always thought, God will give me a boy. If he gives me a boy, that means that he can entrust that boy to me. And sure enough, Patrick and another guy showed up at the hospital with a big bag of athletic gear, including what would become Peter's first jockstrap. And he is so red right now. (laughs) But... So, so it was easy when he was a baby, but then he becomes a toddler, then he becomes a four-year-old, and it's his first time to do t-ball. And I went with him to the parent, or actually I went to the parent meeting without him for this t-ball, and the coach is telling all of the dads, he said, I'm going to expect you guys to be a part of this team. So I want you to be out on the field helping me at practice, and then you actually go out on the field during the games and you help them out. And I had this huge moment of panic. Because at that point, at 42, whatever years old, I had never played catch. I had never played a game of baseball, ever. My dad tried when I was little, but I was so uninterested and so afraid. And I pushed back so much that finally my dad just kind of gave up. And so the next day I went into Patrick's office and I told him about how nervous I was. Like the coach said, we're actually going to have to help. And I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and that night, Patrick called me and he said, bring your glove and a baseball to church tomorrow. So I only had a glove because he had given me one the year before for my birthday, along with two baseballs that were shrink-wrapped in plastic, that were that glove was as stiff and those balls were as wrapped as they had been since the day I got them a year before. I dug around the top of my closet, got them down, went to church the next day, and we went to the youth building, I think, or maybe the kids' building. We went somewhere where there were no people, and, P- and Patrick said, okay, I'm going to teach you how to throw a ball. I was 42 years old. And he said, I only know how to do this with a little kid, so get on your knees. (laughs) So I got on my knees with him across from me, and he took me. 
He showed me how to throw a ball like a four-year-old. He showed me the mechanics of how to, how to do my arm and where to go and when to release the ball. He showed me where to put my fingers on that ball. He showed me how to catch. He showed me how to field the grounder by doing the alligator. We spent an hour and a half. I ran back to my office. I wrote down everything, <laughs> everything you told me on a note card. Okay, I, took, I wrote it down on a note card. I took it home. I took Peter out to my backyard. I took my note card out. And I showed Peter everything that Patrick had showed me in that youth building. The next day was his first practice. Stephanie had to take him because I was going to be a little late. I got there a little late. They're out there in this field. It has a fence around it, a chain link fence. And I walk up and I'm just panicked about the thought of having to go on the other side of that fence. And the boys were with a dad right by the fence. And I just walked up to the fence and watched for a minute. They're, they're fielding grounders. And Peter is doing a perfect alligator. And the, the dad tells the other boys, do it like Peter. And I was so proud of me. <laughs> but it worked. And Peter still plays baseball. And I still know very little other than how to feel the ground or doing the alligator. But it's all worked out. But I appreciate that so much, Patrick, you uh, helping me be a dad to my son. Like you promised. All right. Enough tears. Let's get into this um, wonderful text in First Thessalonians. We are in our second to last week of our series through First Thessalonians. We're calling it Grace and Peace. It's how Paul opens his letter to the church at Thessalonica. Last week we were in chapter 4. Ryan walked us through Paul's um, exhortation and establishing of the church in Thessalonica on how to grieve with hope. Today we are going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to talk about um, what it means to have to, to um, what Paul has to say to the church in Thessalonica about enlightened living. So let's pray and jump in. God, thank you so much for this day. I thank you for. Um, I thank you for your perfect fatherhood over us. I thank you that while your word says that our human fathers do and discipline as they think best, but you always discipline us for our good. And I'm so grateful for that this morning. I pray, God, that we would not be distracted by athletic equipment in the hallways and by Father's Day even, God, but that you would show us more of who you are and reveal your heart to us today. I thank you that there's not one person here by chance. And God, I pray you would soften the heart of each person in this room to hear what you have for them today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. So as you have heard us say over and over in this series, all the T-books of the New Testament are lumped together. They're towards the back of the New Testament. If you find any book that starts with T, then you will find 1 Thessalonians because they're alphabetical. So it is the first T-book of three different T-books, or five actually. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy and Titus. First Thessalonians, we are in chapter five. The text will be on the screen. Please read it aloud with me. Starting in verse one of chapter five. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thank you. So what we see here in this passage is primarily a word of encouragement to the church. Paul is speaking to the body of Christ at Thessalonica. He is speaking to Christians who knew that Jesus would someday return to judge the world And they were anxious about when that day would come. Paul encourages them by telling them and by telling us essentially this. This is is the essence of what he says here. God operates on a need-to-know basis. In his word, we have all that we need to know. We have all that we need to know for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. Everything that we need to know... God has given us in his word, but the truth is that we do not need to know everything. This is so much how we communicate often with our kids. There are things that that our kids do not need to know. There are things that our kids are not equipped to carry. And sometimes wisdom means that we withhold information from our kids. And clearly there are things just like that between us and God. And what we don't need to know, he did not tell us. And this is where Paul starts in this section with with what we don't need to know. He says, you do not need to know when the Lord will return to judge the world in righteousness. There would be, I think, that probably since the beginning of when, when people discovered that there would be an end to the world, people have been trying to figure out the details on how and when it would all happen. I think the most recent one was um, that the world was supposed to end and Jesus was supposed to return on April 23rd, 2018. We know how that turned out. This isn't something like, um, like dinosaurs, right? So how many of you would just like to go, okay, God, where did dinosaurs fit in this? God never mentions dinosaurs. We don't know, right? It's just something that he left out of God's word for whatever reason. This isn't something that God just left out. It's not like he just didn't tell us this. He actually told us that he wasn't telling us. He's very clear with that. He's essentially saying in this passage through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, he's saying, I'm not telling you. He says it will be like a thief in the night. It will come as a surprise. Nighttime thieves do not give notice. He says through this, I read this, I'm like, it's like he's saying, quit trying to figure it out. I'm not telling you on purpose. All we need to know is that it will happen. That's it. I've never really understood people who have this, this unquenchable urge to try to figure out 
something that is so clearly, that God so clearly designed for us to not fully understand. Understanding the details of the return of Christ, understanding the details of the end of the world, it really should change nothing for us as we live out our lives as Christ followers here. Whether Jesus returns at the end of June or whether Jesus returns way into the next millennium, our daily lives as Christ followers should remain exactly the same. I thought about this as I read this text. I thought about what, what, how would things be different today if every minute spent in history obsessing about trying to figure out the details of the end times, what if every minute meant spent by any person worrying about all that had instead been spent caring for widows and orphans or actively loving God and loving others or carrying out our collective calling to go out into the world and to share the gospel and to make disciples and to baptize people and to teach people to do all that Jesus commanded them to do. What if all of the time we spent worrying about things that God designed for us not to know? Courage, you do not waste another things. I encourage you, do not waste another minute worrying about how and when it will all end. Just be who God has called you to be today. And then Paul takes us into several things that God says through this text that we do need to know. We don't need to know when the Lord will return, but we do need to know these things. You need to know who you are. You need to know that you are children of light, that you are children of the day. You need to know that you are first and foremost defined by Christ and all that he says you are. You don't need to worry about the surprise judgment day of Christ. Like, like Paul says in verse 4, you don't need to know about when that will come. Because you are his. You are not in the darkness. We are not in the darkness if we know Christ. We are of the light. But Paul has to remind them of this because they are fearful and they are uncertain. And he reminds them of who they are because nothing should take away fear and uncertainty more than understanding who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ, our identity as children of the day means that on the day of judgment, we who are in relationship with Christ are safe because we are his and he is ours. God describes us here through, through this letter as children of light, children of day. But God's word is full of descriptions of who we are in Christ if we have surrendered our lives to him as our Lord and our Savior. And his descriptions of us are designed to give us security in times of fear and anxiety. And they're designed to motivate us to action. He gives us descriptions like Ephesians 1.5 where he describes us as adopted children of God intentionally made a part of God's eternal family. Peter calls us a chosen people. Chosen. This isn't like me in elementary school. When I was chosen last, and I was only chosen last because the teacher made them choose me. We are chosen by intention. And, in cho- and we are chosen by design. Romans eight seventeen says that we are God's heirs. That we are fellow heirs with Christ, our brother. Jesus calls us his friends. We are called beloved. We are not called tolerated. We are called beloved. 
We are called holy and we are called blameless in Christ. We are called temples of the Holy Spirit, which means that no matter how hard we try, we cannot get away from him if he truly lives inside of us. There are so many more amazing descriptions in God's word of who we are in Christ. This we need to know. And this we need to live. And so he goes on to tell us the next thing we need to know. He tells us how to live like the person you are. It means we should live like people of the light, which we now are, and not children of darkness, which we once were. This, this picture of light and dark, it's a metaphor that is used over and over in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It indicates um, people who are either with God, light, or people who are apart from God, dark. It is used to signify either something pure and holy, light, or something evil, dark. Psalm 107 says that those who rebel against God, those who turn their backs on God and rebel against him, it says they are sitting in darkness. Isaiah 9-2 is a prophecy of Christ, and it talks about how we walk in darkness until we meet Christ, described as a great light. Luke 179 describes Jesus as the sunrise who gives light to those who are living in darkness. Paul talks about his own calling, the calling that Christ gave him in Acts 26. It says, my calling is to open the eyes of those who live in darkness so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13 describes salvation as being delivered from the domain of darkness and delivered to the kingdom of Christ. Ephesians 5.8, Paul reminds Christians that while they were once darkness, not even in darkness, he defines them as being darkness. While you were once darkness, you are now light in the Lord. There's clear evil associated with darkness and a pure holiness associated with light. And Paul says that since you are people of the day... Children of light, you should live that way, which means you should be awake, you should be alert, you should be ready. Think of alertness as as being sensitive to the use of time. It means that we realize that, that the time God gives us is an exhaustible resource that will one day be gone. Verse 3 in this passage where it says that they will not escape. What that means is that there will be a time for everyone. There will be a time when, when we will no longer have time to repent. Our time for obedience will someday run out. And I wonder for us, if Jesus were to return today, what sort of intentional life would we greet him with? And I don't mean a, a list, a balance sheet of good things versus bad things but a picture of how you are using your time to live out all that God has called and designed and gifted you to be. Not whether or not you achieved your bucket list. Not You don't meet Jesus and say, hey, I just want you to know I did make time to jump out of an airplane or climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Paul isn't talking here about making sure you enjoy your time. He's saying you have a time You have a limited amount of time to be who God has called and designed and gifted you to be. Paul says that we are to be sober. Sober, um, it does mean not drunk like with alcohol, but it means much more than than that limited definition of of sober. It means essentially that we are serious and we are self-controlled and we are balanced. 
It means we see the reality of the world around us and we recognize and accept our place in that. We take the role that God has given us in our world seriously. It doesn't mean that we don't laugh and we don't joke and we don't have fun. It doesn't mean that we wear a scowl or that we treat our life as some sort of drudgery. It doesn't mean we look like the picture, my, my, my great-grandparents' wedding photo. where They were all dressed in black and they looked like they were literally being led to their death. The stone, sour face, look on their face. That is not what, what this means to be sober. It means that we experience the joy of a life in Christ without the numbing, disorienting influence of the ways of the world. Without being drunk in our pursuit of ourselves and our flesh. I read a daily proverb every day on Thursday in Proverbs 14. It said in verse 14 that the backslider, the person who who has followed Christ but has turned away, who has turned back towards what he was, the backslider bears the fruit of his ways. And I think that's what this means. It means that we are, we're no longer sober when our lives are so disoriented by the pursuit of our own way. And when the fruit of our lives does not bear the fruit indicative of a children of children of the light. Paul makes sure in this passage that the Thessalonians see the difference in how children of the darkness live. They live lives of laziness. It says they sleep. They are the lives of drunkenness. They lack purpose. They lack diligence. They lack intentionality. They lack self-control. Their life is one of frivolousness. And he tells them that because he knows that even as children of the light, we can slip back into living as children of the night if we lose sight of who we are. Paul exhorts them in this passage, live like you are. Do not live like you were. Live like you are. Peter says that this is how we are. This is who we are. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession who have been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And there is nothing dull or gray or boring about that. That is a glorious existence. We were designed to enlighten the world as we live our lives awake and sober. Paul knows that it's hard to do this. He knows how easy it is. To fall back. And so he reminds them, as Ryan has said, as we've said this word, he establishes them. He grounds them in this passage by reminding them to put on the breastplate of faith and love. It's a powerful image because a breastplate is armor, and that indicates that we are in a battle. Faith, believing that God exists, but seeking Him in hearts in the battle. Faith, not just believing that God exists, but seeking him in his word for the full reality of who he is. Faith is a gift, so it means asking God for more faith as we seek him. It is faith in who he is, faith in what he has done to make you who you are, and faith in the thousands of promises that he has made to us in his word. Love and faith go directly together because as we grow in faith, love for God and love for others grows as well. And our love is what helps our hearts stay soft in the midst of the battle. Nothing motivates us to be who God has called us to be than a growing faith in God and a fervent love for God and a fervent love for each other. But Paul says, don't just protect your hearts, protect your minds with the helmet of the hope of salvation. This is interesting to me. 
And I think the reason he says the helmet of the hope of salvation is because lost hope always leads to sin. If we lose our hope in God, we will put our hope in things that we can see. And that births in us idolatry, which is the essence of sin, worshiping other things or other people over God. And eventually, if we take that path, we will effectually and eventually begin to live in the darkness instead of in the light. So he says, guard your mind. Guard your mind with the hope of salvation, with the hope of the reality of all that lies ahead for you. I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of weeks. As someone who has struggled in much of my life with depression, as someone who can be prone to a sense of hopelessness, I've thought about this, the helmet of the hope of salvation. And I've realized it's true for me that at the end of the day, the thing that's most likely to pull me out of a slump of hopelessness is the hope of my salvation. Not a shallow hope for perfect or changed circumstances, but this reality that he died for me. This reality of the truth of who I am and whose I am. That he died so that I might have abundant life and not just abundant life when I die, but abundant life today. No matter my circumstances. The hope of salvation begins at the moment you enter salvation The moment you enter relationship with him is the beginning of the hope of salvation. And it continues forever. Stay strong, he says, with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. And finally, Paul reminds them and he reminds us of our ultimate destiny as children of the light. He says, God has not destined us, those of us who know Christ, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus. We as followers of Christ, we don't worry about his wrath personally because Jesus rescued us from the wrath that we all deserved. It's the essence of the gospel. But in the fact that we are not destined for wrath lies the truth that many will experience his wrath. You cannot read the Bible honestly and deny that God's wrath is real. That God's wrath is just. And that he will exercise it. John 3.36 says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a reminder that we all begin life with God's wrath on us. And it says here that when when we follow and believe in the Son, God gives us eternal life and his wrath no longer remains on us. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I could honestly quote verse after verse after verse about God's wrath. And sometimes we don't like to talk about God's wrath because his grace and his mercy and his love are just much nicer to talk about. But if we want to celebrate his grace... We must acknowledge his wrath. Jesus' death offered all people the opportunity to be free from his wrath, freely from grace. And if you're in this room today and you don't have a relationship with him, that offer stands true for you at this moment. I love how Peter said it in 1 Peter 2, 24. He said, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If we ignore God's wrath, then his grace means nothing. 
Jesus' death on the cross means nothing because his wrath informs, or another way to say that, his wrath gives meaning to his grace. His wrath is what makes his grace amazing. How incredible is it that we are freely, freely, freely through faith alone, offered the opportunity to no longer be children of wrath. But instead to be children of the light, children of the day, heirs of... But I think we have to be careful with Christ, our brother. But I think we have to be careful as Christ followers in this room to not just take a deep breath and rest in that hope of our salvation. Because implicit in this encouragement that we are not children of the wrath is the reality that out there and possibly right in here are millions of people living in darkness for whom the Lord could come like a thief in the night. Many who are still subject to his wrath and for whom the time for repentance may run out. So what does that mean for us today? It means that out of this encouraging word for us should spring a great sense of missional urgency for us. Jesus said in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him. Jesus is speaking this. So he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. We must work the works of God while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There will be an end and we are called to carry out our calling as Christ followers while it is still day. We have a mission. Every one of us who says we know the Lord in this room, we have a mission to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to shine the light of the gospel the light of the grace of the gospel. We are called to share the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are to be light bearers. Sometimes I think as Christians, we like to rather than be light bearers in the world, we like to gather all of our light together. We like to pull all of the children of the day together into church buildings that are so fortified to keep the world out that there is also no chance of the light getting out. And then the darkness just remains out there. But Jesus said, we, the body of Christ, we are to be a city on a hill. We are not to cover our light. We are not to hide our light. We are to shine the light of the gospel brightly. I always think of San Francisco this way. It's this, it can be this hard, dark city. But every time I meet another, find out another Christian lives here, it's like I see them as this bright point of light in this city. And we know that where it is darker, the light shines more brightly and it penetrates the darkness more acutely. If you've ever flown over the desert at night or, or, or out in some remote area at night. You know, it can be all dark and then suddenly you see this little glowing spot of light. You see this evidence of life and you wonder who in the world lives way out here in the darkness. Imagine your home here in life and in the same way. Imagine your home is a bright spot of life and light in a sea of darkness. And yes, when everything's dark and we're light, it makes us a target. I was just reading this week about... The, the blackouts they did in London during World War II where at night everybody had to turn all their lights off so that the, the bombers by air wouldn't be able to identify their targets. Yes, our light in darkness could make us a target, but we are called to shine our light nonetheless. We're called to be armored up with the breastplate of faith and love. 
and the helmet of the hope of salvation, prepared, ready even to die for the cause of sharing our light. I encourage you to think about that as you pray. If you've got a wristband, as you pray or as you serve at VBS this week, those cute, precious little kids, many of them are walking in darkness and they will be exposed to the light of the gospel right here. 150 of them this week. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work to penetrate their hearts with the light. Think about this week, five days this week, this place is going to be full of kids and the gospel is going to be shared. Think about the lightness of this corner at Octavia and Waller compared to the darkness that surrounds it this week. We're going into Pride Week. It can seem dark as we watch people searching for value and identity where they're not going to find it. And we might be inclined to hide away until it passes. But what if we saw ourselves as light bearers instead of simply repeatedly calling out the darkness? What about the drug addicts on our street? We know that their time may well run out very quickly. Will you see yourself as a child of the day as you roam the streets of San Francisco today? What about your Muslim friends or your Hindu friends or your atheist or your agnostic friends? Will you just sit back and breathe a sigh of relief that you're not a child of the wrath? Even as they stumble around in the dark, destined for wrath, unless they too surrender to the Father of light for salvation through Christ. The light of the gospel very often hurts eyes that have been accustomed to the dark. That's true. But that momentary pain is absolutely necessary for final, ultimate clarity. Time could run out tomorrow. And the question is, will you shine your light today? And will you pray for God to soften the hearts to everyone who is exposed by it? I know this language is strong, this language of wrath and of, 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 of eternal um, separation from God. But the truth is, we can't just not say what's true because it's hard. If we sugarcoat it, we will lose a sense of urgency. There is not one person destined for wrath out there for whom Jesus did not die. There is no darkness so dark that his light cannot penetrate it. He came to pursue the lost, dark world, and he designed that pursuit to be done primarily through us, the children of the day. Paul wraps up this section by saying, keep on encouraging and building up. Yeah, you've been doing it. Keep on doing it. As we've said this week, how do you do that? You exhort, uh, this month, you exhort, you establish, you encourage, you remind people of who they are. You remind people of who God is. You remind people of the source of their hope, but you do much more than that too. Mutual encouragement means that we have to know each other. We have to know our fears. We have to know our failures. We have to know our weaknesses. Do you know other light bearers well enough to know where they need encouragement? And do any of them know you that well? If I hold my weaknesses and my fears so close to me that no one can know them, then that also means that no one can encourage me where I need encouragement the most. And that is a very sad and a very scary place to be. Because that puts me at risk of becoming a day person who lives like a night person. And when I am a day person living like a night person, that sets me up to be insecure, to be fearful, and to be completely useless for the task to which God has called me and all of us. And I don't want that, and I hope you don't want that either. 
And I want to challenge you to be people who exhort each other, who establish each other, and who encourage each other. Imagine the church living these three E's instead of focusing on so many I's and me's and you's and they's. I think it could be amazing. This week, as new as each new day breaks, this has been as I've been studying this. This has been me this week, and it's been it's been an amazing um, exercise. As each new day breaks, remind yourself that you are a child of the day. Be alert, be ready, be sober, and with a sense of urgency, share the light that is yours. Live an enlightened life and the light of the gospel in you will enlighten the way of others. And we pray it will enlighten the way of others towards the amazing fellowship and the eternal security that is ours as children of the day.